It's Wednesday on the Line of Fire, but a special edition of You've Got Questions, We've Got Answers. My phone lines are wide open. Ask away. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. I know it's Wednesday, and our Friday show should be, as always, you've got questions, we've got answers. But I decided, since we always have way too many questions to get to on a Friday, and we have so many people that email us and send us questions on social media, and we can only answer a fraction of them, I wanted to open the phone lines wide today. Any question of any kind, Bible, theology, cultural, it could be Jewish-related, it could be anything, any question of any kind, phone lines are open. And if you're someone who disagrees with me and would like to air that disagreement or would like to challenge me on a point or you think I'm wrong on something I've said here or posted in a video or wrote in an article, phone lines are wide open, 866-348-7884. I wrote an article last night, Confessions of a Former Teen Activist. Confessions of a Former Teen Activist. You could read it at our website, AskDrBrown.org and elsewhere. And I express my appreciation for young people standing up who want to make a difference. I express my appreciation for young people thinking that they could really change the world. It's a belief I live with to this moment that we can make a world-changing impact, of course, for me, through the gospel. And and I recognize that you had people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and others that that dropped out of college and some even dropped out earlier from school and, and were brilliant and began to change technology and change the world in different ways as as young people. And so many social media developments come from young people. I respect that. And I'm glad to see young people who are passionate. But there's also a reason that parents raise children rather than children raising parents. There's also a reason that you have to be a certain age before you get a driver's license, or before you can drink alcohol legally, or before you can get married. And, and that to be president of the United States, you have to be at least 35 years old. And we haven't had a president in his 30s yet, right? Our youngest president's in their 40s. So there are reasons for these things, and that's because practical wisdom doesn't come overnight. And yes, the older generation can get complacent or people can compromise or sell out or become part of the status quo, the status quo of the religious system, the status quo of the, of, of the, the worldly system, the political system. I, I understand all of that. And I'm all for young people advocating for change. I'm simply saying that young people will have various limitations because of lack of life experience. And it's not right to those who have lived to those who have experience, to those who have earned their living through a job, to those who have raised a family, to those who have gotten to a certain point that here in, in sports, coaches are older most of the time than the players. It's rare that you have a coach that's 20 years old, but you can have the top athlete in the world is 20. So that person at 20 can do things they couldn't do at 30 or 40, but the coach is older because the coach has more life experience. So 
when you have, for example, the anti-gun rallies, I'm thrilled that young people are making their voices heard. I'm thrilled that people are saying we need to bring about change. I wonder how many of them understand the Second Amendment, why we have the Second Amendment, why it's important to Americans at all. I, I do wonder about those things. I wonder about how much wisdom they have in terms of practical implementation. And in the article, Confessions of a Former Teen Activist, I share some of the things I was involved with as a teenage activist at the age of 16 and why I'm thankful that God did not give me a national platform at that time. So read the article. You will enjoy it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to John in Rhode Island. Welcome, sir, to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, Hello. My question is uh, Pastor John Hagee in Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've listened to a number of his messages and always found him very encouraging and a blessing. But uh, some people had said to me something to the effect of he doesn't witness to Jewish people or he doesn't think you need to do that. I was wondering if you know anything about that and how, how that works. Yeah, I actually know a lot about it and did have extensive conversation with Pastor Hagee about it. So on the positive side, he has been preaching the gospel for many years. Uh, he holds to a dispensational end-time view, pre-trib rapture, etc., teaches a lot on end-time prophecy. So I don't see eye-to-eye with him on all that. But he has been a great friend of Israel, a great supporter of the Jewish people. He has stood with Israel through thick and thin and raised up a whole organization, KUFI, Christians United for Israel, that has really been a powerful voice to American political leaders and others saying, we are Christians and we stand with Israel. That's positive, that's excellent, that's good. However, at the same time, Pastor Hagee has been careful to say that in bringing Christians together for Israel, this is not a witnessing ploy or a witnessing tool. In other words, If I want to have a gathering of Jews and Christians coming together to say why we stand for Israel and why we pray for Israel, it would be unethical for me to use that as a secret way to now try to proselytize, right? So Pastor Hagee has been very sensitive about that and and has made clear that he's not trying to proselytize, that this is just Christian love and solidarity with Israel for Israel, period. That being said... He made some comments some years back that were controversial, saying that Jesus did not come in his first coming to be the Messiah. And also comments were made that indicated that Jews had their own covenant with God, that Jews had their own way to God through observing the Torah. That's what got me involved. The publisher involved me to bring corrections to a book where he made those statements. I had some extensive personal dialogue with him and then subsequently met with him and some other leaders face-to-face, and I asked him, do you believe in dual covenant theology? In other words, that Jews have their own way to God. No. Do you believe that Jews need Jesus in order to be saved? He told me to my face, yes, he does. Now, that would contradict other statements that he has made that would indicate that Jews have their own way to God. So has he revised his older position? I don't know. I know what he told me in the presence of other national leaders face-to-face. And he said that if a rabbi was visiting his church on a Sunday morning, he'd preach the gospel and call on them to believe in Jesus like anybody else. His right-hand man at Kufi, David Brog, who wrote an excellent book about Israel and the importance of Israel today. David is a Jewish man, not a believer in Jesus. David Brog told me over the phone in a very candid back-and-forth conversation we had 
David Brog told me that John Hagee witnesses to him all the time and tells him he needs to believe in Jesus. That's what David Brog told me. And yet I know these other statements where he indicated sympathy for a a dual covenant theology. This much I do know. He does not actively work together with Jewish believers in the land. And obviously, you say, well, if I work with them, that's going to alienate the Orthodox Jews or the traditional Jews. And we say, well, that's the, that's the Messiah's body there. That's like Paul and Peter, you know, Jewish believers in Jesus. That's the ones you need to work with more than anyone. So my appeal to Pastor Hagee would be continue, sir, to stand with Israel. We need your voice, and you are a great voice at it, and we appreciate it. Share the gospel with Jewish people like you share the gospel with anyone else and show solidarity with Jewish believers in Israel. That would be my appeal and my hope. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Because I've uh, all the messages I've heard from him on YouTube or whatever have been very encouraging. And when I heard this, I, I wasn't sure what they were talking about, so I just wanted to, some clarification on that. So that, that sounds yeah. like uh, it's good. If he has changed his mind in that area, that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah, and, and again, I can only say what he said to me, and what his Jewish associate said to me, and how he's sought to distance himself from other comments that would indicate that Jews have their own way to God. I, I wish I could be more definitive, sir, but that's that's simply what I know and what I've heard firsthand and other statements I've read that have concerned me. Thank you, sir, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Raleigh, North Carolina. Nathan, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, just thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. Um, I, I just had a question the other, uh, it was maybe last month, and uh, I have problems with uh, sleeping at night. Uh-huh. Hey, Nathan, just uh, hang on one split second. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Just need to make sure you're speaking directly into the phone. I know our call screen has always reminds you of that, but just want to make sure you're speaking directly into the phone because if I'm having a hard time hearing you, my listeners are. All right, so you were saying you have a hard time sleeping at night. Go ahead. And uh, sometimes I stop breathing because my sinuses. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if I was dreaming or, or what happened, but it kind of felt like when I got to sleep, you know, I I don't know if it was like an out-of-body experience or it felt like I was kind of floating with I don't know, it felt like I was a spirit or something. Mm-hmm. What is your uh, opinion on, like, out-of-body experiences? Could, could we have those in this life, or would it be something like when Jesus takes us up, we would kind of become a spirit like that, or? No, yeah, Nathan, I, I appreciate you asking that. Certainly, we can have out-of-body experiences because we are spiritual beings housed in an earthly body. And there are people that seem to have verifiable out-of-body experiences. I was reading a book by a former atheist skeptic who began to investigate some of these accounts. And for example, there was a man having surgery, a believer having surgery, and his, his spirit left his body during the surgery. And he was observing what they were doing and what the machines were and the settings. He was able to tell the people afterwards, this is while under anesthesia, he was able to tell uh, the family what the family members were wearing that were sitting in the waiting room while he was being operated on. Uh, another account where the guy was talking about stuff that was on the roof of the hospital 
you know, you couldn't get to the roof just through the building. And yeah, they went up there and there the things were. So I have no problem conceptually with people having an out-of-the-body experience. My guess would be, though, unless there's some really spiritual significant lesson associated with it, or God was doing something highly unusual in your life at that moment, my thought would be, you know, the, the mind is very capable of imagining all kinds of things, and, and it could well be just the sensation of being half conscious between sleep and, and being awake that, that your mind just felt some things, hence that, you know, someone fainting can have an odd sense of experience, and where are they there, are they not there? So, yes, we can have out-of-body experiences, and these are things that are even recorded in the New Testament. It's certainly not the norm, nor is it something we should look for. And I would say if it was a genuine out-of-the-body experience, my take would be there would be some type of real spiritual encounter with that. Just my educated opinion. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So we're doing a special edition. If you've got questions, we've got answers on today's Line of Fire. I just thought I'd do it, wanted to do it. A couple of news items I'll reference as well. I was asked a question on Twitter. Should the Christian world help to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Uh, I would not participate in helping to rebuild the temple. In other words, if there is to be a third temple built before Jesus returns, it will be, in Jewish eyes, a further vindication of the Jewish faith, a further sign that their expectations are correct, and an argument against the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So even though it may be part of prophetic fulfillment, it would not be something that I would actively be involved with. I would pray, Lord, your will be done. And believing if it's prophetic and going to happen, it's going to happen without my help. Another question, when God said to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you, did he mean through you as in Jesus, uh, the Jew, or is it through you as in you are the model of faith and anyone who has faith like you will be blessed? No, through you meaning through your seed, through your offspring. So through the Jewish people, through the prophets, through Moses, through those that would follow, but in particular through the Messiah, that the whole world is blessed through Abraham's seed, the Messiah, not through Abraham and his example, although he is the father of those who believe. He is a great example. But through you, if you look at other passages, we'll also say through your seed or in your seed or by your seed, meaning the people of Israel, and ultimately the Messiah as the preeminent seed. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Sandra in Iowa. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Braun. Good to, see you. Good to hear you again. Well, thank you. Um, I have a question. Like In the Old Testament, sin was forgiven through offerings, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the New Testament, Jesus died for our sins, so we can get saved and <clears throat> forgive uh, our sins. And my question is, since Jesus hasn't died yet, but he told the people, you know, what is easier to forgive your sins or, you know, to heal you? And he says, you know, be healed and your sins are forgiven. So with what authority did he forgive? Was it because it was on credit, because he knew he will die in the future and he can be, like God is out of time and space? 
or was it because he was God? But then for me, the question is, why would he establish that there have to be a sacrifice to forgive mm-hmm. sins? Great. So that and, and, like, yeah, just a quick question. Uh, what's your ethnic background? Oh, I'm from Germany. I was one of your students once. Got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the, German, the German accent uh, <laughs> is also a German way of thinking, very systematic and logical, which is, which is why I asked. So these, these are great okay. questions. Uh, number one, God can forgive based on whatever he desires, right? He's okay. God, and he sets the rules. He's the one that says what's right and wrong. He sets right. the rules regarding forgiveness. That's number one. Number two, yes, there was the idea that everything was done based on what Jesus would do. He was the lamb okay. slain before the foundation of the world. So that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't really have the power to forgive sin. They were more symbolic and more mm-hmm. dealt with an outward cleansing that the real forgiveness still came through what Jesus would do. And it was always coupled with human repentance, human turning from sin and asking God mm-hmm. for mercy. In other words, Jesus died on the cross for the whole world, but it's only those who turn to him in faith and repentance who are saved. So mm-hmm. just like on the Day of Atonement, sacrifices were made for the whole nation but if someone did not participate in those rites and did not go along with what the laws required, the sacrifice would not be efficacious. It wouldn't be effective for them. So okay. all sin ultimately forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross. Why did there have to be blood sacrifice? This is God's justice going along with his mercy. This is God saying, because I'm holy, sin must be punished. Because there's guilt, there must be payment. At the same time, If an innocent one makes the payment, then God can have mercy on all. So it's almost like the bank saying we have to be able to balance our books at the end of the day. So there's going to be a $10 trillion debt, and and the people responsible for it are going to go to jail. And someone who's been frugal all their lives to save the $10 million says, I'll pay it instead. So the books are balanced on the one hand, and mercy can be shown on the other hand. And then... Ultimately, Jesus is simply doing what he does as son of God in this earth, having authority to forgive sins, but everything ultimately forgiven based on what's going to happen on the cross. Okay. Make sense? Yes. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Hope you're doing well, Sandra. Nice to hear from you. you. 866-34-TRUTH. Just looking at the clock, and we go to John in Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. What up, Doc? How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good, man. I'm a big fan. I love your ministry, and I'm, I hope I heard you and uh, Dr. James White talk about teaming up again. I'm counting, crossing my fingers that happens again. Yeah, we're, we're looking to do it. We're eager to do it. Hopefully it'll happen. Okay. Go ahead. My question for you, um, Isaiah 63, um, verse 11, about halfway down, talks about how the Holy Spirit um, helped the people through the land with Moses, but then also it says that Jesus led them in Jude uh, 5. So which one is it? Yeah, you also have 1 Corinthians 10 that mentions that when Israel got water from the rock, that the rock that followed them was Messiah, was Christ. Right. And there's, a, there's an ancient Jewish tradition that actually you know, has this rock, physical rock, going with them. So it, it is both and. Number one, there are times when the Son of God, Jesus, appears in the Old Testament. There are times when that happens. And, and therefore, we, we accept that God makes himself known through his son at different times in the Old Testament. 
At the same time, the ongoing presence that was there was the Holy Spirit. So Jesus will do things to this day by his spirit. When he says we're two or three gathered together, I am present. He's present by his spirit. When he says I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, he's with us by his spirit. So there are times when he visibly appeared to Israel and manifested himself, but otherwise the the ongoing work that took place in the wilderness, the leading, the correcting, God being grieved, that was all by the spirit. Just like today when Jesus says I'm with you always, how is he with us? He's with us by his spirit whom he sends. Same in the Old Testament. He was with Israel by the spirit that was in their midst as they traveled through the wilderness. And that's why the spirit is the one who gets grieved because he's the one interacting with us most directly. And that's why it's the spirit on the prophets. As they speak, it's, it's by that spirit because that's his role. He's the one working invisibly in the world among us. Was uh so was Jesus is that a name for him in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, stuff like that, with uh where Jacob wrestled and with Samson's parents and things like that. Is that so yes, yeah, sometimes you, you can it, it's debatable. In other words, there are times where it says the angel of the Lord appeared, and we can debate whether that angel of the Lord in every case was Jesus, was the Son of God. But there definitely seem to be cases where that is the case. And Genesis thirty two, where Jacob wrestles with an angel. We know it's an angel because Hosea 12 tells us. Genesis 32 says it's a man. Hosea 12 says it's an angel. But then he calls the place Peniel, saying, I've seen the face of God. That's what Peniel means. I've seen the face of God. I've wrestled with God face to face and lived. Yes, so we understand that that angelic appearance is actually Jesus making himself known in Old Testament times. That would be called the theophany, a divine appearance. That would be different than the ongoing work of the Spirit in the midst of Israel. So the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, these would be manifestations of the Spirit in Israel's midst. And when you have this personal visitation where, where, where the Son of God is seen, that would be Jesus actually appearing there. Hey, John, thank you for the questions. And as Dr. White and I are able to team up, do a debate together against others, which we've been longing to do for years, uh, we will make sure everybody knows about that. 866-34-TRUTH. Do I have time? Yeah, let's, let's try another call. We go to Oregon. Aaron, welcome to the line of fire. Good afternoon, Dr. Brown. Good afternoon. Hey, um, thanks for taking my call. I just want to say I, I really appreciate all the work you're doing um, in so many different fields. So may God bless your ministry. Thank you, sir. Um, yeah, I have a question about fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, so in First Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about marital rights. And mm-hmm. my question is, Is it does that verse teach that you are obligated to withhold marital rights from one another in the context of biblical marriage if either party, if either spouse is fasting, or is it, only by agreement in that circumstance are you ever allowed to withhold marital rights. Right. So the number one, your bodies belong to each other. So there needs to be mutual respect and understanding and, and not demands put on people that are undue burdens, either to abstain or to be together all the time. Fasting is talking about separation. Someone can fast and not have food or water and you can go a few days like that. 
Someone can have uh, just water and no food. Someone can have only certain types of food. And uh, again, it depends on the fast that is being done. And often while fasting, separation from certain bodily pleasures, bodily appetites, so there would be no sexual intimacy during that time. But what Paul says is there should be agreement. So there should be mutual honor. There should be things worked out. Look, if, if one uh, partner, one spouse is fasting all the time, you know, and, and, and there's never any sexual intimacy, then obviously there's not mutual consideration. On the flip side of someone saying, no, no, we have to be together all the time and you can't fast for a week or something, well, then there's not honor both ways. So there should be mutual agreement on these times and then freedom to, for both to, to seek the Lord together and come to harmony. Let each one honor the other, put the other first, and honor the Lord, and these things can be worked out. Hey, thank you, sir, for the question. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, we're doing something special on this Wednesday, which is we've opened the phone lines wide. You've got questions. We've got answers. Plan to take questions, as always, on Friday, but we want to give more opportunity. Our phone lines are always so flooded on Fridays, so just want to give you extra opportunity 866-34-TRUTH. Before I go to your questions, a friend sent me a neat headline today. Walmart has now removed Cosmopolitan magazine from checkout aisles. Now, what caused it? You know, some say it's in reaction to the Me Too movement. Others say there's another cause for it. They'll still sell it, but elsewhere in the store. You know, we've been pushing for that. It started in 1991, just said, why bombard us? We're at the, the grocery store. You get your kids there, you know, getting diapers and milk and you know, food for the week. And you get them bombarded by all these sexually charged headlines. It almost sounds like puritanical now to talk about this because the culture's fallen so far. But this is something we talked about in 1991. If you read my book, it's time to rock the boat. That, that's, that's what this book was written out of, our original confrontation there. But, hey, a step in the right direction direction. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Alabama. Craig, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How you doing? Doing well, thank you. Great. Um, well, uh, first of all, I'm not a Jew, but I am really obsessed and in love with the culture and the language quite recently. Um, but I'm also a truck driver, so I'm limited to uh, books on Audible. Got and, it. Uh, and just for kicks, um, recently I started to just learned the Shema in uh, in Hebrew for my own, just just for kicks, and I, I learned it from uh, from YouTube, uh, hearing it recited. It was recited um, Adonai was the word used, and whenever I actually saw it read, I saw the tetragrammaton in there. So my question is, and I tried to look up, and I couldn't find any contemporaneous evidence for why they replaced um, the tetragrammaton with Adonai in a lot of things that I've read. So sure. I'm wondering, like yeah, so, yeah, I appreciate your interest, Craig, and in, in, in learning uh, in, in the midst of your driving. 
Uh, and a lot of folks get a lot of their learning from audiobooks these days. So number one, the Shema, you're talking about the prayer based on Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That would be a traditional Jewish translation. Others would translate it, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. But how come it says Adonai, where you've heard it, Lord, rather than Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, God's name, which is mentioned there? Jewish tradition for many centuries, even going back to the time of Jesus, said that it was too sacred to pronounce the name of Yahweh. That's why verses in the New Testament that had Yahweh originally now have Kurios, Lord. So this is a tradition that goes back probably a couple thousand years to substitute Lord for Yahweh, and that's done in Jewish circles to this day. So if you said it, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, um, a Jewish person hearing it would be startled by it. They'd hardly recognize the words, but if they're a traditional Jew, they'd tell you not to do that. That would be sacrilegious. However, I don't believe it's sacrilegious personally. As long as there's proper reverence for the Lord, we were never told not to pronounce that name. That being said, I honor Jewish tradition, and if I'm speaking the scriptures, interacting with a Jewish person about the scriptures, I will say Adonai instead of Yahweh. Thank you, sir, for asking my book, oh, it's, I don't think it's available in an audio. 60 questions Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. If it's not available in an audio, it should be. That, that would help you with a lot of these types of questions. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Peggy in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm asking, my question is, what are the spiritual implications of this message? that the pastor at my per- church preached over the weekend, which is that the tribulation took place around 68 or so A.D. when Rome surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem, and he claims that Nero was the Antichrist because uh, he was called the beast. His name in, I think, Hebrew numerology comes out to 666, and he required people to have a mark on their hand or forehead in order to uh, purchase anything in their communities. And this is obviously assuming on my part that that's incorrect. I think that's error from what I understand about the tribulation. So that's my question. Yeah, uh, and you asked the exact right question, Peggy, namely implications. So first to try to find an exact correspondence with Nero, you're going too far that you couldn't buy or sell without his, his mark is, a, is an exaggerated statement. You know, uh, the whole world couldn't buy or sell. I mean, obviously exaggerated statements there. That being said, uh, there are certainly parallels where you could see how this had implications for the early church and it has implications in every generation and implications for the end of the age. But if you teach that the tribulation period is all past, right, then normally with that, this is a preterist view, it's all past. You normally are also taught that when Jesus said he was coming again, that meant coming in judgment, and that happened the destruction of the temple in the year 70. What are the implications of that? They are vast. They are massive, and I believe they are very wrong, even dangerously wrong. Generally speaking, what happens, Peggy, is that there is no future hope for Israel. In other words, 
Israel today is not considered fulfillment of prophecy. There is not a belief in a future spiritual regathering of the Jewish people because the second coming already happened and God fully rejected Israel. Uh, There are other issues that come up in terms of fulfilled prophecy. I debated one gentleman who said that, that the resurrection has already taken place, that there will not be a physical resurrection of believers, that we have had a spiritual resurrection. Some even claim we're living in the new heavens and the new earth now. So these are serious errors. I'd watch carefully to see how much your church teaches this. If this becomes a major thrust, and week after week, there's teaching about this, and preterism, and the second coming already happened, that to me would be the kind of teaching I could not sit under. If the pastor's just going through Revelation and says, I think we can best understand these in the past, but it's not throwing out the rest of biblical prophecy, fine. But if he is saying that the, what we think is still future has already happened, that would be the kind of teaching I could not sit under myself. Thank you, Peggy, for asking that question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Barbara in Houston. Welcome to the line of fire. Barbara in Houston? Yes, that's you. Okay. Uh, Dr. Brown, thank you for your wonderful ministry. My question is, what do you think of Sarah Young and her devotional books uh, like Jesus Calling, uh, she's either greatly esteemed or uh, castigated as a heretic. So I'd like Bar- to know what your opinion yeah. is. Yeah, Barbara, I, I know she's she's published by, by major Christian publishers, you know, Thomas Nelson, mainstream Christian publisher. That they published my book, Saving a Sick America, and many, many other well-known books, best-selling books, etc., but I've never read a line of Sarah Young. I, I've not because I'm against Sarah Young. I just never, I've never read her stuff. So I know some really love her and some really uh, have a hard time with her. But I've never read anything she's, she's written. There's plenty of people I've, I've never read. There's so many authors out there. Do you know, Barbara, what she's accused of? Why some people. Yes, yes I, yeah. do, I do exactly. She, her devotionals are. Uh, they're written in the first person as if God or Jesus himself is speaking. Mm-hmm. And I myself sometimes, when I read them, I, I convert, I mean, the, the, the teaching is sound, but I convert it into the third person. It does seem to be a little creepy to me. But then on the other hand, I have a friend that says, well, you know, when God gives you a prophecy and he's speaking through you, so I guess you have to believe she's truly, she's truly a prophet, and God right. is speaking through her. But that—that that is it. All, a lot of her devotionals are in the first person, Jesus speaking or God Himself speaking. Right. So, so here's my take, Barbara. Only based on what you're saying. Okay. So, based on the information that you're giving me, number one, you could say that she's speaking prophetically. To have whole books coming out in the first person. And claiming those are prophetic would give you the feeling of of adding to Scripture. But that's one option, that she's speaking prophetically. Another is that based on scriptural truths, she's trying to articulate the heart of God. Uh, Picture, 
you, you have a child and you're talking to your child. And, Mommy, I don't understand when the Bible says this. I don't understand. And you say, well, here's what God's saying. See, God wants you to understand. He's saying this and this. And it's as if he's saying, hey, I'm near to you and, I'm, and I care about you. And, and, and I, I could preach a message or write something and kind of paraphrase. Hey, here's what it's saying. God's saying this. He's saying, look, I care about you. I'm not casting you off. I could go on for four or five minutes talking like that, not claiming to be prophesying, but to be taking biblical truths and to be explaining them and just putting them in the first person. So if she's claiming a unique divine inspiration, you know, that would concern me. And again, I'm only basing this on, on what you're saying, and I, and I trust you're accurate in what you're saying, but so you know, I, again, I haven't read anything she's written. If she's claiming to do all this by the gift of prophecy, then everything has to be tested at the, the highest level. If she's simply saying, hey, here's, here's what I, I sense based on Scripture, God is saying, I'm, I'm going to recommunicate that as the Lord speaking in the first person, then you take it as such. You don't take it as literal prophecy or trying to add to the Bible. So I, I'd have to find out what she believes and how she is saying it. And then either way, everything has to be tested by the clear revelation of Scripture. Hey, thanks, Barbara. And if, uh, if I get to look at some of the material myself, then I'll, I'll get you my own opinion on it as well. But appreciate the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's see. Tell you what. We're going to have a break coming up shortly. So we're going to go to Germany, California, all over the country and the world as soon as we come back. I want to encourage your friends, our trip to Israel. Every day it's getting closer. You say, yeah, but it's February 1st through 10th next year. Yeah, but it'll be here before you know it. Holy fire in the Holy Land. That's what we're calling it. So you're going to get the best of both worlds. You will get a phenomenal tour, stay in great, great hotels with great food, have a great group of people that you're with. My friend Scott Volk, who you'll love with you every step of the way. And then one of the best tour guides in Israel will be taking you around. So you'll get the absolute best of that. Then... I'll be joining at certain key sites with extra teaching because the tour guide does a great job. I'll be joining with certain key teaching at, at certain key sites. And then at night, every night, we'll be doing things together. I may be preaching and ministering one night. We may be doing a Q&A or you'll go and do radio with me. So go to the website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Get your deposit in today. Join us in Israel next year. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on this special Wednesday edition. If you've got questions, we've got answers. God willing, our Friday broadcast, same as always, taking your questions. Tomorrow we'll be doing some special teaching about Jewish roots of the faith and how Passover and Easter got separated. You'll find it to be a really fascinating broadcast. Remember, we do a live stream video on Facebook and on YouTube as well as our podcast, as well as all of our radio stations. So welcome to everyone tuning in. Let us move over to Germany. Nikita, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. 
Thank you for having me. Um, I would like to talk about, you know, the saints, the dead saints, and the miracles that they are doing, because myself, from a Russian Orthodox ground, background in the past, I've struggling. I've been struggling with the question, you know, the saints which are dead right now, they perform miracles, they help people, as my church claims, but I'm not really sure what to take for that. So, because yeah. you have, for example... Um, St. Spiridon on Mount Athos uh, in Greece. There's a monastery, and his corpse is buried there. And people from all over the world, they are sewing him shoes, and the priests and the monks are putting them on on this corpse, and somehow, uh, after a while, they get worn out. And all these other miracles. Yeah, I and then you have right. You have things like with Fatima, yeah, Fatima and Lords, and things done in the name of of Mary, and things like that. So uh, a number of things to do in, in evaluating this, Nikita, and it's it's a very important question. Someone coming from your background. Number one, we recognize with anything that stories can be exaggerated, right? With whoever is telling the stories that over time things can be exaggerated. So there's a lot of myth. That's one thing. There are other things that can just be psychosomatic or, or imagined or just the result of emotional responses. You know, that can happen to someone in a charismatic prayer meeting that they think God healed them and they just had some emotional experience that, that can happen in any kind of different setting. All right. So one possibility is there are myths and exaggerations. Another possibility is things are not really miraculous. They are just uh, apparent. It's, it's the emotions and confusion comes. A third option is that it's demonic, especially if it's, if it's not a God-glorifying kind of miracle. In other words, if it's not the healing of a sick person or deliverance from demons. So a third possibility is that they are counterfeit miracles. The Old and New Testament warn about counterfeit miracles. That, to me, is an indication that there are real miracles taking place. That's why you have counterfeit miracles. Just like in America, you don't have a $3 counterfeit bill because we don't have a real $3 bill. So you have counterfeit miracles because there are real miracles taking place. And then lastly, is it possible that someone who is truly seeking God, wanting to put their faith in Jesus and is believed in all types of false traditions about the saints and things like that, that God may have mercy on them and heal them because they're really looking to the Lord, but they're looking through this distorted lens with false teaching. So God in his mercy could actually work a miracle to someone who had some error in their theology. Let God be the judge of that. That's possible. But what I would say is our emphasis must be what does Scripture say? And Scripture is very plain on not consulting the dead. Scripture is plain on prayer going to the Father in the name of Jesus. And if any other name gets exalted, then the name of Jesus, something is wrong. If this is now to the glory of Mary or to the glory of this saint or that saint, as opposed to, to the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, then something is wrong. So, again, could be exaggerations, could be just what people believe to have happened and didn't really happen or just happened by the power of their own mind, could be demonic counterfeit, could be someone who's a believer in Jesus but yet with a lot of error in their beliefs 
and they're sincerely seeking God in the midst of their error, God has mercy on them. But let everything be tested by the word. If a saint rather than Jesus is being exalted, something's wrong somewhere. And I would not put any credence in that, nor would I allow that to influence me. I'd say, hey, God knows what happened. I wasn't there. I can't tell. But I do know what Scripture says, so I'm going to stick with what Scripture says. That's what we're sure about. That's what was given by the inspiration of God. All these other groups can disagree on their traditions, but we stay with Scripture. And out of that, you can have a wonderful relationship with God. And I believe he's performing miracles in the name of Jesus all around the world. Hey, thank you so much for the question. Well, we don't hear much, but in many circles, a very relevant question. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to California. David, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure thing. Appreciate it. Uh, So my question is in regards to a friend of mine who, she's older, she's like in her 50s or so, she's a Messianic Jew, and uh, I'm only 22 years old. I'm actually a new believer about two and a half years in, but she has very strongly reprimanded me in many ways uh, because she is very um, strict about like the Mosaic laws and stuff like that and has and oftentimes even she texted me and called me and um, even prophesied judgment over me for for not walking and, and you know, like, in that sense, um, in, in regards to, like, old tradition. And, you know, she's very uh, she's very particular in, in that sense. And I actually ended up blocking her number. And yeah. I guess more so I'm asking about how I can best reconcile that relationship and honor her. Um, while at the same time standing firm and true to my convictions and knowing that I am walking in obedience to the living God and uh, in right relationship with him. Yeah, and David, are are you born Jewish? Uh, no, no, I'm actually not. All right, so, all, right, so uh, all the more, right. Yeah. Right now, the best thing you could do is walk in the freedom you have in the Lord and walk in obedience to him and not get into controversy with her. What I would do right. is this. I would say, I honor you as an older sister in the Lord. I appreciate your passion. But if you cannot receive me for who I am in God, go to Romans 14. Based on my best understanding of what my master wants, this is how I'm living. If he wanted me to grow a beard, if he wanted me to you know, observe the seventh-day Sabbath and follow every Jewish tradition in the book, whatever he wanted, I would gladly do. But that's not what I understand he's saying through the word to me. If you can receive me for that and know that the Lord receives me, great. We can have fellowship, and I'll bless you as you follow the Lord, as you understand, and I'll do the same. But beyond that, David... Uh, and I've just got some background noise, so I've just got to, uh, you can hear me, but you can't respond right now. Uh, beyond that, sometimes the most honoring thing you can do is not get into a fight. The most honoring thing you can do is say, hey, we may differ here and we may divide here. I, I bless you. I love you. But we just can't be in fellowship. So it's 100% up to her. So I would, I would, with humility, just say, hey, here's where I stand before the Lord as I, as I understand his word, this is how I should be pleasing him. If you can accept me in that way, the Lord does, great. If not, we just have to agree to disagree here and move on and let Romans 14 be the guideline. Hey, sorry you're going through that. And you, you get folks with extreme views in all parts of the body. It's a shame when we so aggressively try to push them on others. Let's see. I think i got time for another call. Paul in Vancouver, Washington. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. It's an honor. Thank you. 
Uh, I have a quick question about um, both testaments, the old and the new, regarding violence and, and using uh, force. Mm-hmm. Uh, some background about this question. My sister, um, after the Trump election, she's becoming more and more uh, Republican. And after the Trump election, I became more uh, politically conservative, but I didn't go down the same path as she did. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we're having a huge disagreement uh, regarding Christians and their use of, of force. And uh, she, she accused, I, I was uh, mentioning, you know, the New Testament, and um, she was appealing to the Old Testament. And so my question is, how do we reconcile the Old Testament and the New Testament in regards to violence yeah. without going down the road to Marcionism and even what Brian Zond kind of uh, dabbles in? Got it. Yeah, all, all, all clear. And just because of time, I, I can't explain now to everyone watching and listening about Marcionism and and. Brian Zahn's teaching, which, of course, is not exactly Marcionism in any way, but um, to the point, number one, God is dealing in the Old Testament a lot with national Israel, and national Israel in the midst of of fighting wars, and initially dispossessing the Canaanites and taking the Promised Land, and real life and death battles. The New Testament, although the promises to Israel remain and are reaffirmed in the New Testament, the New Testament is more dealing with God's reaching out to the entire world through his love on an individual basis, and individual conduct, which takes some of the truths of the Torah about not retaliating and things like that and takes them and goes even further. So on an interpersonal level, we do not base our faith on exterminate the Canaanites. You're having a dispute with your neighbor. You burn their house down and drive the family out. No, God forbid. Rather, you try to overcome evil with good. You try to overcome hatred with love. That's the New Testament ethic on our interpersonal relations. At the same time, Paul, Romans 13 does talk about the authority of the government and the sword being given to the government to enforce the law, to punish the wicked, and, and, and to reward the good. So on that level, we can still have the mentality of what's best for America, and there may be a time when America has to go to war, But we, as followers of Jesus, do not have a spirit of of personal retaliation or holding on to bitterness. But look, a judge needs to sentence someone, right? The judge can sentence them guilty as charged, you're going to jail, while you can forgive them personally. So you have what the nation does, and there is military, and there are laws, and there is violence in that respect, all right? We may go to war at the same time interpersonally. We follow the example of Jesus. All right, gotta go.